um, Doug Logan. Yeah. That's this this episode. You're get us this back is on topic. part part two. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this this episode really starts off with him talking about family. Yeah. And this is important to you. Yeah. I know the training you've done with me and just watching you as an example. You're emphasizing family life. Yeah. Doug has the same cry. Yeah. Talk about this. Well, I think when I think about church planners, all the church planners that I know and have worked with over the years, um, they fall into a couple of different categories. They're the guys that pretend like they don't have a family and they just plant a church and their family gets drug along behind them. There are guys that try to balance family and ministry, which if you've ever been around me and heard anything I've ever had to say about this, my, my big shtick on family is there's no way to balance the two. Um, something as weighty as gospel ministry and church planting and something as weighty as pastoring, shepherding, providing for, caring for, loving your family. They're too weighty to to try to do one for a little while and the other for a little while. Um, you have to try to blend them as much as possible. So, um, and I think even in some of my private conversations with Doug and interaction with him, he's, he's mentioned about the ways that that blending has happened in my household. The blending looked like, you know, sometimes it looks like practical things like taking my kids along with me to visit somebody who's in the hospital or, um, sharing the gospel with somebody while we're out in a restaurant to eat or, uh, having my kids engaged with me and uh, setting up and tearing down. One of my favorite stories about about this is, uh, yeah, so there was this one uh, instance in my church planning journey where uh, we had been baptizing in a horse trough for a while, and um, and we wanted to upgrade. I saw those newfangled baptistries, you know, on the yeah. internet from uh, Portable Church. No, not Portable Church, but uh, PortableBaptistry.com. Uh, and I went on there, a little plug for Portable Baptistry there. Yeah. I went on there and, and I ordered one of those like $800 baptistries that's yeah. like a jigsaw puzzle. You put it together and you put a liner over it and that kind of thing. Wow. And I set it up in my garage and uh, I filled it up. It was like, you know, the, the Friday before we were baptizing on Sunday. And I didn't want our first time to set it up being on Sunday. You know, so I, I filled it up in my garage and I turn it on. And I put the heater on it. And uh, my kids wake up the next morning and they they come outside in the garage and there's this baptistry in the garage and they're like, Dad, can we swim? And (laughs) (laughs) of course, I was like, no, that's something sacrilegious about that. Like, you can't swim in the baptistry. And they were like, come on, let us get in. And our whole family piled in the baptistry, all six of us. And we just uh, I just it was a great memory. That's like a great picture. I mean, we're all in. <laughs> we were all in, and the water was all out. It was overflowing over the side. So it was it was fun, and my kids remember that to this day. I remember mm-hmm. another time, too, we had this, like, ice cream deal, and we had tons of ice cream left over. And uh, so, like, the next night, we got the projector from the church and set it up at the house and did a movie night and ate tons of ice cream. And I mean, it was all the leftovers from the church thing. And so like, sometimes you got to leverage the benefits of church planning for the joy of your family. And, and and I think Doug, Doug sees that too. There's a bunch of disadvantages that your family's going to, going to experience by being a church planting kid, but you got it. So you got to grab onto those advantages and squeeze them for all they're worth. Mm, I love that. Well, without further ado, here's Doug Logan part two. Enjoy. You know, there's a there's a there's a slogan in one neighborhood in Camden called Parkside, um, and it says Parkside where Camden happens, mm. and so the block is where life happens. Yeah, it's where life happens in the inner city. That's really good. Are you finding that uh, there's an overwhelming rush of church planters that want to go into that <laughs> onto the block? 
No. <laughs> Absolutely not. There's not. And, um, yeah, so that's Why? my. Yeah, well, it's dangerous. You get killed on the block. You you know, in my house, my son's room, my 22-year-old now, his they were shooting out at the house, and those bullets hit my house mm-hmm. right at my son's window. Um, hmm. My car was vandalized because a young kid stole a dog out of my stole a dog from me, and then got mad because I was going I was coming to get my dog back. Vandalized my car, yeah. and um, the block is where drug drug deals happen. I don't want to walk out to drug being sold in front of my house every day. The block is where shootouts happen. The block, I buried a lot of kids in my yeah. day in Camden. The block is where 14, 15-year-olds kill each other over colors. The block is that, and it's it's rough. And that's why it's called Church in Hard Places. Amen. It's, it's, it's a hard place. Not hard for God, but it's a place where hard things happen mm. and people want to avoid. And so um, I just simply felt called there. I felt like... Um, Churches have abandoned the inner city, and yet they scream that they're they're solved, this, you know gospel centered and all that, and but they don't take their gospel centrality to my hood. Mm. Um, they go to nice places, and so um, I remember one time, you know, when I think about that, Doctor Eric Mason back, man, this must have been, gosh, oh five. He's from Washington D.C. from, um, and he was in Washington. He had to run to see his his mom. Mm. and he just was riding around the hood. He had been in Philly for some time because he was in Arkansas at Fellowship Associates with Bill Wellens. And, man, he just called me in tears, almost in tears. Yeah, not almost, I think he was crying. Um, not only crying, but more weeping, broken. Mm. He said, Doug, man, D.C. needs some churches, man. Mm. I'm from here, but I want to see the gospel formed here, man. Man, Doug, we just got to plant churches. Man, we got to walk in this gospel. We got to walk in gospel integrity. Man, we can't mess this thing up. We got to be committed. We have to see churches planted in these inner cities that are going to engage the lost. You hear me? He was yelling at me like I had done something wrong, like I messed up D.C. And But I will never forget that passion. He says we got to plant these churches in the hood. We got to do it, man. People are lost, man. People need the gospel. I was like, amen, amen. You all right? He said, no, I'm good, man. I just want to get this gospel out, man. I was like, all right, we're going to get the gospel out. And I, that impressed, that that laid an impression on my soul. And so I began to pray, God, help us form something, mm-hmm. a family of churches, a mission, something. Um, and we were at me, I was actually me and then, no, I wasn't quite actually me and then I was in the process, um, 05, 06. And he was like, man, let's just, I'm asking God to just help us to plant in the roughest cities in America, the most neglected places. Mm. That's where we want to go. Mm. And so, um, yeah. And so, <laughs> so when you, when you get a guy, let's say there's a guy who's actually willing to do it. Mm-hmm. So who are some, uh, thought leaders, some guys that, uh, books that you'd recommend that would inform an urban church planners understanding of the city as a whole? Man, I would tell them to do demographics. There's not a lot of urban books written, period. There's a few out there. I mean, Dr. Manny Ortiz um, was a good friend. I love him. Mm. Um, he spent a lot of time talking with me. He wrote a big book called Urban Ministry. Mm. Um, one, you know, One New People 
about Hispanic church planting, the, the Hispanic challenge. And mm. of course, there's a lot of the Harvey Kahn stuff. But there's not a lot of stuff about urban church planting out there, very few. If you Google it, and you know, that's not to say nothing about my book. I just wrote uh, what I did book. Right. And, um, but that'll pop up in a lot of those Google searches. And that book's three years old. So when you run down history, there's not a lot. There are some out there, some mm-hmm. really good ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Urban Ministry by Manny Ortiz is good. Um, yeah, I think that's good. I like it. And I mean, it was better when I sat and, and he told me all about everything. It was greater than the book, and I love the book. Um, you know, Harvey Kahn stuff, planning urban churches. Um, yeah, that's but, good. We'll link to those in the show notes. That's yeah, that's helpful. A bunch of a bunch of those things, but demographics, googling, and just looking at city life. And seeing the cracks, the holes, you'll find where the devil has been the most busy. And that's why we got to attack. So when people come to me to raise support, when they just tell me about how cool their church is going to be, I'm not supporting that. I want you to tell me how the devil's been busy, where he's been busy. And I want you to tell me how you're going to take this gospel, raise up an army of urban missionaries to engage the lost and to build upon what God would use you for to um to, to evict him and his schemes out of these high concentration areas mm. of pockets where he's gained much ground. Mm. And so that's what I ask church planners, man. What what's what's falling apart in the city in the urban context that you really want to tackle, that you're really gonna pray fast and grind at, um, you know, in conjunction with making disciples and preaching the gospel. What are some areas you want to really get at? Mm. And I need them to tell me some area and a lot of times they just don't know the city. They have a passion with no plan. Mm. And they have a lot of passion, but they don't have infrastructure. They just say, these people are lost, I want to reach them. I like that, but you got to go further than that because you go into the inner city with no plan. You'll lose your family. Mm-hmm. You'll fall apart. You'll lose your mind. You'll leave out of there with PTSDs, mad at God, mad at your sending agency blaming everybody you'll be a mess and that's what i don't want for planners mm-hmm. i want them to go in eyes wide open and so study cities study the city read stuff keller's stuff about cities in general is amazing he gets it and then you have to then apply that to the hood which is a sociology class in itself yeah <laughs> so there's city and then there's hood yes and those are two distinct things so it seems oftentimes keller's stuff is really strong when it comes to like city and he's sympathetic to like the hood, yes. But you almost kind of got to go to the next set of resources to really get, you know, oh, because it is it's, it'll turn your brain around when you're looking at uh, hood issues and you're just like, what, what, where do I start? Yeah, because there's so many layers of brokenness. In your book, you talk about family and hope. Mm-hmm. Those are two of the kind of. Um, big points that you make early on I think even in the preface of the book and um, what did that look like in Camden well you know we stated earlier well it was um, amnesty for my family to challenge and push back on me and not feel like they're standing in the way of God you know because I've said ignorant stuff like that when when they disagree with me well this is God's blessing you standing you know it was ignorant wrong and sinful by God's grace man um they forgave me. So that was a big deal. And then on the flip side of that was fun. I wanted my kids to have some doggone fun. I didn't want their stories to be riddled with all we did was ministry. Nah, man, I wanted to go on vacation. 
and to places they want to go to. You know, I want to go into the swimming pool with them and play basketball. So we weren't just going to do ministry. We were going to have some some doggone fun. Mm. I wanted my wife to be on vacation and not just say, you know, we can't go on vacation because, you know, our roof is leaking. Nah, I need my roof not leaking. Mm. And so it became incumbent upon me to create a household that was conducive for both fun, faith, and growth. And um, a lot of stories I hear from urban planners, older urban planners was they didn't get to go on vacation. You know, they always had a house that was, this was wrong and that was wrong. And man, that ain't, that, that ain't no good. That's not the environment I want my kid. Nah, I'm not with that. So I wanted them to be healthy because I wanted them to walk away from the hood with hope, mm. not feeling like they did a, a bid under their dad as the warden and then walk away, go to college, and hate urban context. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I, and, and God. A lot of urban, a lot of kids of urban planners, and they don't like to, they, they stop, sometimes they stop not, they don't want to be bothered with God after a, a long 10-year run of murder and crime, broken houses and no vacation. Right. They get bitter. And so I wanted the urban experience to be a ministry experience mm. that came with me being a good steward of my family mm. and protecting their well-being because I'm their dad. Logan Baptist Church is the first church I'm in, I'm the pastor of, not Epiphany Camden. And so if the members of my household are dissatisfied with my pastoral ministry, well then I have no way that if I can't manage my own household well, how do I walk into Epiphany and put somebody in church discipline? I can't because I am I need to be in discipline. Therefore, I just wanted to have some doggone fun. Mm. And I wanted them to have hope that God can work and that God does work and that God was with us. And you don't know you have PTSDs until peacetime, right? Right. I didn't want them to leave and go to college and get to college and say, oh, I feel like I've been in a war zone. Right. My dad, you know, did me dirty. Nah, we're going on vacation. Hmm. We going here. We going to the swimming pool. I'm getting you this guitar you want. I'm going to help you get a car. I'm going to teach you how to drive. We're going to grandma's house, and if you get city claustrophobic, spend the night at grandma's. Stay over uncle so-and-so house. Go down there with pastor so-and-so, and that's what we did. And so it allowed them to breathe and dislike the hood on days, just like I dislike the hood on days, and then love it again after you get over yeah. it after about two days. So yeah. did you build that into your fundraising budget from the beginning? Because so, a lot of what you're talking about there costs money. Yes. So you just said... We're not going to be cheap. We're not going to be cheap. Yeah. And I built it in. That don't mean I raised it. And so what yeah. happened was, man, I shared that with a church. One of my um, good friends, Dr. Bruce Finn, man, at a church, um, Covenant Church in Doylestown, PA. And I just shared the vision for church planning to raise some loot. And while there, I was sharing what I'm telling you about, man. I don't want my kids to be jacked up because of my calling and me ignoring them. And I don't want my wife walking away from me and the Lord because of my bad husbanding and pastoring. So I really want to set them up. They've asked me for some things, and I want to see those things accomplished. And I'm just praying and asking God to do it. And that intrigued one of the pastors. And next thing you know, one of the ladies at the church named Angela. So Angela put together this team of contractors. And um, another guy by the name of Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Davies. Chuck, so Chuck Davies said, this is what we're going to do because we need long-term success and long-term hurt for you. So, man, I bought this house in Camden for like 60 grand. Mm. 
and Covenant Church along with Chuck Davies. They did probably a $65,000 renovation on that house and charged me about $5,000. Wow. And so, I mean, my wife was walking around and they were just telling, you mm. You would have thought that they were getting paid mm. the way they ministered, catered. And when I say catered, I'm not doing whatever we said, but really was seeking to accommodate Angel and the boys mm. as they asked, like even down to Colors of the Room. I remember one of the guys working who I hadn't even met yet. He just was one of the people. He asked my son what color he wanted his room mm. and to that detail. Wow. And they just really set that up. Um, nice. And that particular church said, if you ever need a vacation, you call us. So I never forget, I joked preaching at that church about vacation. And a family said, several families came to me and says, we got vacation houses. Mm. And one of them said, we're going to make you one of the partners with us. Wow. And so I went to a house in Vermont on vacation, free of charge. Mm. And my kids loved it. My wife loved it. And so that those people rallied around on the front side. So they set our house up well. Another family, I mean, gave me a car like an Acura. And um, wow. they just set us up, man. Yeah. They set us up to win. That's powerful. So um, let's talk a, a little bit about the church planter in the urban context. Okay. Um, how should a pastor, um, pastor to instill hope uh, in his people? Um, the instilling of hope is talking from reality with, I'll be a little theological here and I'll unpack it. At Epiphany Camden, we said, when we get to Camden, man, when you talk to people, a lot of pastors, ministry leaders, they just often just would dwell on how bad Camden was. And I was sick of being around those folk. They just talk about how bad it is. I mean, I, I don't even like being around those type of people. They just annoy me. Like, we got the gospel. We got the Holy Ghost. The world was bad and Jesus still came. The world was bad and he didn't get off the cross. He stayed and died in our place. Like, and he popped up like popcorn, vindicated as the true son of God and gave that resurrection reality is my hope. And so he said... He's coming back to get us from this low land of sorrows. He said he's making all things new. So I have an eschatological hope built into me at conversion. And I have a temporal um, inbreaking of shalom hope every time somebody gets saved, right? Mm -hmm. Every time we share the gospel and somebody meets Jesus, that's an inbreaking that points me to that eschatological hope. And so we, our slogan, because I remember we came in from a meeting and every time we would talk to a minister or somebody in and around Camden, it was always bad. Like, yeah, it's rough. Out here. All they do is sell drugs. These boys don't pull their pants up. They wear their hat back. I'm like, okay, okay. And this one got killed. Us all. I was like, tell us some how God is doing. And nobody had a bad story. So we said this. We want to be, we want to have an environment of grace with an atmosphere of hope with an atmosphere of hope, an environment of grace with an atmosphere of hope. So when you get to Epiphany Camden, we believe we engage you from the door to the Florida sanctuary. And we want to say hi. Our hospitality team, my wife led along with one of the deaconess, Sarah, man, they killed it. Hug people coming in the door. How you doing? You know, pray for you. If you look, if your face is dropped, 
Come in. Don't even walk in there yet. Come over here. Let's pray for you because we want you into his gates with praise. Mm. And they would stop you at the door and they were on their job. That hospitality team was amazing. And then, man, and we wanted to harp on the realities of the hope of God, not absent the mess of this world. But we weren't going to do mess of this world only. <laughs> we were going to continue to point from this mess to the hope we have in Christ. We've been sitting at a planet church and see the invisible church made visible through the preaching of the cross. And so we have the greatest hope. We don't weep like those who have no hope. We have the only hope that is hope, and that's hope in Christ. The hope that is within me, the Holy Ghost. Jesus has saved this nasty, wretched sinner who didn't deserve it. So I want to make sure they know that in the midst of their addiction, in the midst of their poverty, in the midst of their domestic violence, in the midst of death, murder, and violence. I want them to know, I don't care how bad it gets. We have the only hope that is real hope, and that's hope in Christ. Mm. And so you're going to leave knowing that sin is nasty, evil, and disgusting, and you have sinned against a holy God. But you're going to leave knowing that Christ gave us hope mm. in him. So Amen. I'm not giving you, I'm not, not going to beat you down with how bad it is and then walk away. No, I'm going to tell you how bad it is. But I'm going to tell you how good God is. Jack Miller, um, Dr. Jack Miller, pres prince, um, professor at Westminster, he, in many of his talks, um, he wrote some stuff called Sonship. And he says, he would say this, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you could ever imagine. That's what he would tell people. <laughs> and then he would leave this long, awkward gap. He was like, pastor, they, he, he would say something like, pastor, man, I'm hurting, I'm depressed, I'm struggling. And he would say, okay, cheer up. You're worse off than you thought you were. <laughs> and then he would leave that awkward pause and then he would say, but cheer up. Christ is bigger than you thought he was. Mm. And so we just wanted to live in that pocket mm. of a reality of hope, not this fuzzy wuzzy was a hope. Not this hope absent, the reality of sin and death and dying, sin and separation from God. We teach that, preach it hard, but not without the resurrection hope that Christ brings to those who will repent and call on his name. Amen. And so we just got to do both. And a lot of churches don't. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they, they preach the bad and then they say grace at the end. <laughs> right. And it's like, give me more grace, bro. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So what what do you what would you describe as the characteristics of a urban church planter? What are, what are some of the things he's got to have? Man, he's got to have three things. Um, I was working on this for my my doctorate. Um, IQ, EQ, and CQ. And then a small, I like triperspectival. I got a John Frame spirit. And so I like to try perspectival. So, but then I'll extend out to multi-perspectival and add um, uh, M, the, 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 um, the MQ as well, but very, but small because the CQ covers it. And so IQ, he's got to have a theological intelligence. He's got to be in the Bible. Mm. He's got to know the text. And I, I'm, on the board of a seminary, board of trustees of Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary. So I believe in seminary, even though I just got a degree in 2016, uh, only a 16 year masters. And um, <laughs> um, yeah, and 
And so, yeah, you just can't go out there with passion. Theological. Yeah, you got to have theological. Second one, EQ. You got to have an emotional intelligence. You've got to be able to deal with the realities of death dying and still maintain a posture of hope. Mm. You've got to have a David where you encourage yourself some days. Mm. You've got to have a Joseph posture where even in jail, you still know that God is with you. Mm. You've got to have that. And that Daniel in the lion's den, believing that God was going to not remove his teeth from the lion, but God was going to um, turn the lion's den back into the garden pre-fall. Mm. And so then, and that's the EQ. And then the IQ is, uh, I mean, then the, the CQ is the cultural intelligence. You've got to know how to maneuver and handle the block in a way that's culturally relevant and yet theo- without compromising theological integrity. Mm. And so, you know, so we've got, you've got to know the block. You've got to know culture. I was coaching a guy last night and he was telling me he was going through some stuff and a bunch of people are in the parking lot smoking weed and, you know, drinking in the church parking lot. And so I was like, bro, they got to go. He said, man, I ain't just ready to go over there and tell them to get out. (laughs) I said, I said, well, listen, I want you to go over to one of them and say, hey, man, praise God and pass this on so. Man, I'm really um, glad you guys feel safe at the parking lot, feel good here, but, man, I need you to really do me a big favor and a big blessing. I need y'all not to smoke smoke weed and drink all up in my parking lot. Mm. Man, I just want you to honor God, and I really need you to honor me because I want to honor you. I said, say that, man. Mm-hmm. Say that. And if you got to go Chucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's and grab some Big Macs and bring them with you, right. do that. Um, and he said, all right, that's a good idea. <laughs> I said, send me a check. Don't just thank me. And um, <laughs> I, he didn't call me today, so I guess he, they didn't kill him. So yeah. he's probably safe. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so cultural intelligence is so important, navigating funerals, navigating through gang wars, navigating through... Um, as you minister to drug dealers, mm-hmm. you know, navigating through stuff like wife and wifey. Wifey means you're not married. That means y'all just together acting like y'all married. How mm-hmm. to handle, how to do premarital in those situations. Navigating at the jail. Navigating um, without being um, deemed a snitch or a narc type person, but sure. being a pastor. It takes cultural intelligence. So yeah. those three things I think each guy yeah. needs to have. Yeah, that's great, man. That's awesome. I I know that. Um, so in in my context in Baltimore, we've um, I'll just be real transparent about just going into that setting. Definitely was committed to the urban setting, um, but as I assessed kind of what was going on in the city, I discounted the historic black church because they don't have websites. So when you're moving in, you're doing that demographic work. Um, they're kind of invisible and then what is visible like um, on TBN or on Facebook live streaming of maybe a a black church is like charismania and so for about a year and a half I just kind of like chalked it up that this is what the historic black church is and then started um, it was through one of Tim Keller's conferences he had Charlie Dates there and Charlie was explaining 
hey, here's the importance of the historic black church. They're some of the few, you know, pillars that are willing to go into the neighborhood to be in the worst parts of the neighborhood. And uh, they need to be supported and not, you know, looked down upon. And so I started attending my my second Antioch Baptist, which is three doors, three blocks down from where I live. Mm -hmm. And um, sweet group of 10 people that gather and the pastor wearing his robe gets up and says, we're in John nine. We've been going through the book of John teaching verse by verse. And I had to understand, I had to learn that there's this distinction between there is a a charismatic side to um, some black churches, but there's a beautiful culture that exists there. So um, knowing that context, Mm -hmm. and then I've got some guys in my church that are, um, um, that have come out. So a minister keys in my church, I've got couples that have come out of a black context how um, should I one should I feel bad for having those guys in my church have I stolen people from another church Um, and then the second question is how do I support um, second Antioch Baptist well I think um, first let me preface by saying brother you aren't the first person to say you know when you think about the black church you see what's on TV and it just seems like that's it. And so a lot of my white reformed evangelical bros, they do that. And as an African-American in evangelicalism reformed, um, who was um, at a historic white 200-year-old PCA church, 10th Presbyterian church, I'm not allowed to do that dismissal. So I would challenge people who do that, that um, um, if that was the case, then when I see people on like Kenneth Copeland, then. I can't dismiss all the white churches. Right. And so, but that happens in our context. They get dismissed as charismania and there's larger and super large charismaniac churches um, that are white and that I'm, that, you know, I have to navigate through all that. And so a beautiful experience is for us to take people for who they are and deal with it um, as we live in those spaces and it's hard. And um, yeah, but, we have to do both and we have to see both. So I praise God, man, that as God gave you uh, an epiphany about that, mm. that the disciples you make, white and black, will not dismiss anybody. Right. They're going to take people at their head and that's got to be front loaded into our discipleship and to our leadership development. Dr. Eric Mason made that very explicit with me to go over to the city and he needed me to meet with multiple churches that didn't agree with me on purpose. And I did. And, um, <laughs> wow. it, it was rough because yeah. uh, most times I was being told so you're you're reformed now well you're the and so I was like I called Pastor I was like I don't want to meet with him he said you finish meeting with them churches like I told you so he wanted me to meet with like seven churches which I did mm. so I did OPC Pentecostal Baptist I just did everybody in the city I could um, and met with a lot of guys and I met some some good some good brothers um, period um yeah, I had a good was time. Was that a learning experience, or did it did it have some carryover beyond just you learning something in it, a meeting? It needed to remind me that you can live in Reformed evangelicalism in that TGC world, that seminary world, you know, RTS, Corey Conwell, and you can ignore the realities of the inner city folk because you'll live so up there. You'll live so up in the conference 
live so up in the seminary, live so up in the books we read right. from Crossway and Lifeway. And then we're not on a ground level because people in my city don't have Crossway and Lifeway. Right. And many of them didn't go. So I can just live above that. And I needed to live with them. I needed mm. to know them. And I needed to ask God to show me value, remind me of the value. Because as a church planner, you can get to the hustle and bustle of doing the church thing like we've read from Ed Stetzer, like we've read from different authors and forget right. that Reverend so-and-so 70 years, been pastoring that church 50 years, ain't cheating on his wife and been preaching the gospel, but he just doesn't use words like reformed and, and, and ecclesiology, but he's been preaching the gospel. So mm. you can forget that when you live up in the world, when that's all we say. And so that's important. So to the two questions, the one question would be, um, did, are you stealing them? I, well, first, they're God's sheep and not ours. Um, so we're stewards of them. Um, it's stealing if you, you know, if we're dogging, blasting, and, and trying to destroy them without going and having a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. There are some churches that are faithful to the gospel that aren't in our Reformed Evangelical stream at all. They've got their own little network going, and they've been leading people to Jesus for years and years and never showed up to one of our conferences or one of our seminaries. And so that they, they've been doing their own thing for years. And so, but there are some ones that are theologically whack and unbiblical. And so if there's a church where the guy is not preaching the gospel, where there's it's just a complete non-Jesus thing, right. well, then— we want to be concerned for that man in our city. Um, we want to see he get the gospel. But if a person runs into you and you're talking about Jesus, they get smacked in the face with grace and join you. I don't see a problem. But if there's, and it's still not stealing, even if they left a good church and come, but I would push them back to go talk to them and not receive a story about how he ain't doing this. I ain't being fed and you got the good stuff. You let us dress down and stuff like that. No, nah, don't accept that. That's wrong. That's 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 wrong. Mm -hmm. So so it is important, particularly for my white bros in inner city ministry, man, to hit those churches. You have a lot to learn from them and a lot to hear from them. And so when you disagree with them, you're disagreeing not with the press on them, but you're disagreeing with their words. That was important for me in Camden. So when I sat down and talked with them and they were like, nah, man, we don't believe in no church planting. That's what, that's what, nah, we ain't with that, man. Nah, we ain't. I was like, okay. So now, I didn't hear that on the street. So when I push back on that, and when somebody says to me, I want to plant a church, and what's the name going to do it? I know he said that. Mm -hmm. And so I can, I'll still send him back so him to go have a real conversation with that pastor, show him the scriptures and love on him. And if he's leaving, leave well. But um, they have to leave well. A bad church a bad situation at a church and a good situation. They both have to be left well, and then we'll gain partners and avoid um, angers and fights. Yeah. And so, man, I just think we have to do that. But that's a lot of hard work. That's a lot of relational work. It's emotional. It's challenging. But you just got to do it, man. And I think when you think the long game, if you've won that brother, he's going to reach people that you probably wouldn't reach. Right. You're going to reach people he may not reach. Man, and if you guys are shacking Kobe in the city, that's a game changer, baby. But if we just parse off, then we're not 
really maximizing and optimizing the realities of gospel relationships. Mm. We got to win those because there's a great marginalization happening from the traditional church and the missional church, man. And we've got to prevent that because we're going to have churches of millennials and then churches of senior citizens. And man, that's not a picture of unity. Like, nah, man, we've got to bridge that gap because we're told to let the older teach the younger. And if we're only and if a lot of our church is attracting younger and then the older traditional churches are maintaining to keep the older, then we're creating a gap where the transmission of the history from in the African-American context. When I hear from sisters at my church um, in Jersey that are 92 years old and talk about seeing Martin Luther King. I need to hear that as a younger guy. My sons need to hear that. I don't need to be sequestered off in a church because I don't like their robes and we disagree on some points. We got to have some conversations. We need that oral transmission, that historical thing. And there's some robust gospel-centered heavyweight ladies and men at those churches that have a lot to teach us. Mm. Let's not cheat ourselves out of that because once they go to heaven, they're in heaven. And I want everything I can get from them. So as a young minister, when I came up, I was with old heads all the time. Mm. I was with old heads all the time. I just was with them, and I learned so much from them. And um, what I've learned about an old African-American Christian, man, when they gripped by that Jesus, mm. they're not even bitter about the racism they suffered because mm. they counted all joy, and then that transmits to me. Mm. It takes me away from my bitterness it challenges me to trust God in that way and I needed to hear that from a person who's never heard of John Piper and Tim Keller but she heard of Jesus <laughs> and she was in the civil rights movement and she wow. grew up in segregated schools and then she told me about that and how she how she laid her burden down at Jesus and Jesus carried her mm. young people millennials need to hear that mm. so we've got to do our best to unify. So if people are leaving and coming to you, Pastor, they need to leave well, and you need to have a clear line of communication with the leadership of that church, particularly the pastor. Mm -hmm. And then the second question, tell me again so I can answer it quicker. How do I support my local historic black church? Man, just be their friend. There is no black church relationship that don't exist. You a godly pastor, good mm -hmm. dude, love Jesus, sent. Go be his friend. That's all, that's, look, that's all I am to pastors in Acts 29. Right. I'm just a friend. I'm their part, I'm their, we bros. Be a bro. Mm. But as a younger white dude, I would tell this to a younger black dude. Don't go over there telling that man what to do. Especially if he got you by like 30 years. Go sit and listen. Right. Sure, you got your opinion. And sure, no, you don't just sit over there and shut up. No, you're going to talk, but have a level of deference. Mm. And, um... You don't have to agree with everything he says. And you don't have to tell him you disagree every time you disagree with him. You can't tell him, of right. course, because you're going to build a relationship. And just go have fun with him. Mm. Bring him a gift, you know. Ha laugh, you know, invite him over to the game. But there is no special black thing. Mm. It's regular old gospel love. Mm. Just love him. That's the greatest value you bring is when you're regular. But when you try, I hear a lot of white guys saying, I'm trying to navigate this relationship with this black church well. I say, do you say that with your white friends? <laughs> <laughs> is it a special navigation? Do you have a special GPS? Like my theory is English is, you know, just an American English. Do you have one with an Australian accent? I don't know. What do you mean navigate? 
be a gospel bro. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Yeah, man. Even as you're talking, I'm thinking of stuff that uh, I've got a gift. I've already got a gift to bring to him. Um, uh, let's close with this. Can you make your pitch for guys to come and plant in, in the city? And pitch pitch Baltimore because I want some more guys in in my oh, city. <laughs> okay, I would. Here's my pitch: the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. I've been praying for years and years that the abandoned inner city would be newly inhabited through um gospel centered churches that are committed to the least, the last, and the lost in the high concentration, poverty, violent areas um, because, man, some of the greatest times I've had is in the pockets, in the cracks and crevices of those. God has shown himself big. It's not that he doesn't show himself big there, but when you see God work in those crevices and cracks, especially for a guy from there, it's just a, a joy that just won't go away, even in the midst of the roughness of it. And so, man, people in the hood need the gospel. Mm-hmm. We need churches. We got plenty of homeless shelters. We got plenty of coat drives happening. We need somebody to come and preach that raw gospel. See people converted and baptized and see them grow from indigenous unbeliever to indigenous believer. And so, because we got to see the long game. Mm. And that's what, so I'm, I'm calling on guys to not see the initial roughness, but to see the long-term effects that their great-grandkids would go into cities impacted mm. by what they did. And they have to see themselves through the narrative of Scripture. Jesus went to the roughest us on this earth, and he dealt with the marginalized and the rough disenfranchised people and we are products Mm. of that upper room we are products of his ministry to the highways and byways in the in 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 that whole region Mm. to see it go man and look what he did with 12 can you imagine if we had an army of gospel centered churches in inner cities like Baltimore Mm. where you have so much from Hebrew Israelites to all types of people pers- pushing hope that doesn't have the hope of the gospel that's void of Jesus. I want people to have a an Acts 17 moment, walk through and see everybody else being worshipped <laughs> and not this unknown God. Mm-hmm. I want us to have that moment where we're provoked in our spirits to go and see the city transformed block by block by the gospel. He can do it. It doesn't get reduced in the hood. The same God that works in the hood works. So I want some gospel gentrification. I want the gospel to change the area around. <laughs> gospel gentrification. That's I want good. The gospel to do it. I don't, I don't just want developers. Mm. I want the gospel developed in people yeah. to revitalize the city. Amen. And, um, that will make the houses nicer mm. because folk that's been touched by Jesus, led by Jesus, mm. they should take care of their stuff. Oh, amen. 
Doug, thank you so much, man. This is such a blessing. How should people con uh, connect with you? You're on Twitter. I see that. Yeah, Twitter, Pastor D. Logue. I'm on Facebook. I'm the worst on those things. I normally click on them and then disappear for the rest of the day. But I'm easy. Acts 20. Doug, um, you can go to Acts 29 webpage. I'm on there. Send me an email. Um, I will respond. Not a robot. Um, cool. Um, and I will respond. So just get me that way. Um, the my book is available on everything. Amazon, yeah. So yeah, do your thing, man. Thanks cool. for having me, brother. Great, yeah. great time with you. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Thanks for tuning in to the Church Planting Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode.